This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. John Kerry, President Biden's international climate envoy, joins the Post to discuss the importance of setting ambitious goals to cut global greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and how the U.S. plans to lead by example. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another and another installment in our series, Protecting Our Planet, with the 68th Secretary of State under President Obama, currently President Biden, Special Envoy for Climate, John F. Kerry, who's just back from Shanghai, where he met with Chinese leaders and announced that the two countries will join efforts in the fight against climate change. You see him there. Secretary Kerry, welcome to Washington Post Live. Glad to be with you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Sure, great to see you. Following your trip to Shanghai this week, the United States and China, as I just said, announced a plan to work together on climate change to push for more ambitious action. Tell us more about the plan and your trip to Shanghai. Well, Jonathan, um, in 2013, when I was serving as secretary, I went to China and worked with uh, and negotiated with President Xi and and the top leadership to try to change the dynamic. You may recall Copenhagen had failed miserably in 2011. Um, and part of it was the division between China leading the G77, all the countries of the world that uh, were poorer and uh, feeling the impacts of climate, uh, and they refused to join in. So we needed to change that dynamic. We succeeded in changing the dynamic. President Obama and President Xi stood up in the Great Hall of the People and announced our mutual reductions and, and the direction we went. And that really helped to bring about Paris. Without China at the table, there is simply no way to resolve uh, the climate crisis. So I uh, went to Shanghai at the instructions of President Biden uh, and engaged with the Chinese in what is a separate, really a, a track of its own, which was important because we obviously have differences with China on certain issues. Um, and climate has to be treated independently from that and is being. But we, we worked uh, to try to get a new standard between us, if you will. And so what the Chinese did was sign on for the first time ever to a joint statement that we made in which they acknowledged this is not just climate change, this is a climate crisis. China used the word crisis for the first time. China came around and said that it is urgent and has to be treated with utmost seriousness. And for the first time, they didn't just talk about uh, plateauing or, or peaking in their emissions by 2030. They have now agreed that there must be actions between 2020 and 2030. And President Xi has agreed to take part in the summit uh, that will take place tomorrow. And at that summit, he is expected to make some announcements about what China is going to be doing in order to try to um, address this immediate challenge of 2020 to 2030. You know, I hear a lot of people signing on to 2050 net zero and so forth. It's welcome, it's critical, but it's 30 years from now. 
And if we don't have people signing on to what they're going to do to raise ambition between 2020 and 2030, we don't get where we need to go in 2050. Uh, and there is no holding to the Earth's temperature increase to the 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is the uh, standard now that we're working on. So the purpose of President Biden's summit is to raise ambition globally. And China has now signed on to help uh, emphasize the fact that we need to deal with greater mitigation, greater adaptation, greater resilience efforts. The world is way behind where we need to be. And this is gonna take very dramatic efforts for all of us to make up the difference. Well, Secretary Kerry, let me zero in on two things specifically with regard to these big goals and China. One, uh, you mentioned the 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, the goal of limiting global, uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Do you think China will meet that goal? Well, we don't know yet. Uh, I mean, that is the test, obviously. Uh, right now, China is the producer of almost half uh, the world's coal-fired energy. Half of all the coal-fired plants in the world are in China. And there are other countries also that have very significant coal and coal coming online even now, which is a serious challenge for all of us. I think uh, there may be somewhat, something like 200 gigawatts of power yet coming on in terms of uh, uh, China and, and coal. So we have to transition away from there. The marketplace in many parts of the world has already moved away. You can't find finance in America for a new coal-fired power plant. You can't find it in Europe. And there are other countries that are now changing their attitude uh, about the funding of coal-fired power. But we have to do it at a more accelerated rate. Are we at the rate we need to be to achieve 1.5? No. Can we get there? Yes, if we really push. And, and so um, India, for example, I just went to India a few weeks ago and Prime Minister Modi signed on. Uh, he had already announced that India is going to try to deploy 450 gigawatts of renewable energy in the next 10 years. But really they need the finance and, and additional technology input to help do that. So we have formed uh, President Biden has agreed to a new partnership with India uh, and Prime Minister Modi has agreed that we will work together to try to help make sure that deployment happens. Why is it important for America to try to help do that? Because if that 450 gigawatts of renewable energy is deployed, India is on track to maintain the 1.5 degrees. So what, it, what, what, what the achievement of the 1.5 really requires is a hugely accelerated deployment of renewable power, renewable energy capacity by all of the top developed countries. Those countries have been invited by President Biden to be part of this summit. So you will have the top 20 economies, which is the equivalent to the top 20 emitters, all taking part in this uh, in this uh, summit tomorrow. And many of the countries are now committed as a result of President Biden's efforts over the course of the last months to raising their ambition quite significantly. Uh, you saw UK announce uh, uh, two days ago, they're gonna try to hit a 78% reduction by 2035. 
Europe is at a 55% reduction by 2030. Uh, and in the next uh, days and hours, uh, many other increases of ambition will be articulated. And, and that's what the world needs. We have other benchmarks along the way in the next months, the G7 in June in England, in, uh, in uh, Cornwall. Uh, we have uh, the United Nations in September. Uh, and then of course, uh, the, the most important negotiation of all, which would be Glasgow, which is probably the world's last best chance to come together and get on a track to do what we need to do and what young people all around the world are holding adults to account for not doing. Uh, Mr. Secretary, from what I understand, just before coming on live with us, you were on a conference call with 42 countries. Um, is, was that conference call sort of the, the table setting for, for this week's climate summit? And also, was it your opportunity or the administration's opportunity to articulate to those countries what the United States is going to do in terms of increased ambition? Well, Jonathan, thanks for asking that. Uh, and, and I didn't know you knew about the meeting, but um, we had a meeting with about, uh, uh, as you said, 42 countries just spoke up uh, in a session which began at seven o'clock in the morning and went right up until this. I sat down one minute before this began. And those 42 countries weighed in, I mean, all over the world, Sri Lanka and, and uh, Suriname and uh, you know, uh, countries that are the most vulnerable in the world. Uh, the, and, and they spoke to their vulnerability, but what was impressive about it was they all talked about what they're doing. Each and every one of them is less than one fractions of 1% of the emissions of the world. And every single one of them are taking steps, Montenegro, Slovenia, I mean, Hungary, countries all around the world are trying to mitigate. They're trying to do what they can in many cases without the wherewithal. Um, and this listening session, which is what it was, came about because so many countries wanted to be part of this summit. And we simply can't do that virtually, trying to manage 12 time zones, uh, as, a, as you know, is is very, very complicated. Uh, so we have countries that'll be at all, all hours of the day tomorrow because tomorrow is live and President Biden will be listening to each of these nations, President Xi, Prime Minister Modi, President Putin, uh, uh, you know, presidents and prime ministers of the top 20 nations, the prime minister of Japan and so forth, uh, will all be talking about what they intend to do to try to meet this moment. And the listening session is because so many countries had something to say and cannot possibly have a moment to say it during a virtual summit like this. So I listened to the 42 statements, some of which had to do with need for finance, some of which need technology, uh, some of them uh, uh, need help in order to uh, uh, be able to, to uh, deal with their adaptation and resilience challenges, island states, for instance, some of whom the choice has not become adaptation or resilience or mitigation. The choice has become where are we going to go live? Because our island is going to be 
uh, inundated by the rise of the sea level, which they're already experiencing. So I will have another session on Friday morning with about uh, 30 more nations that feel they want to be heard. Uh, these are all representatives of those 138 nations I talk about and many others who are a minuscule component of the problem, but a major part of the plea to respond to it. And I, the, the, the fact is that what President Biden is doing tomorrow is reconvening what we used to call and what we started with President Obama was the major economies forum. It happens to also obviously contain large emitter nations. And so it is critical because 20 nations are the equivalent of 81% of all the emissions on the planet. And we need those 20 above all to step up. But the challenge is this, Jonathan, the United States could go to zero tomorrow. I mean, we can't, but if you, if you figuratively speaking could go to zero, we'd still have a problem. The world would still have a problem. If China went to zero tomorrow with the United States, we'd still have a problem. So every country has to come to the table. This is the single biggest multilateral global negotiation that the world has ever needed. And the stakes could not be higher because, I mean, we hear people talk about this being existential. For many people on the planet, it already is, but we're not behaving internationally like it is in fact an existential challenge. We even have deniers still in the United States. Uh, we're the one nation that has a lot of deniers. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of money has been spent in our country uh, to create that doubt and the possibility of denial. We need to get on track based on science, based on facts, based on truth. And that's part of what this climate summit that President Biden is hosting is all about. Well, Secretary Kerry, I want to squeeze in two two questions um, before we go because our, our time is limited. And so let's focus um, stateside, and that is on the Green New Deal. Uh, Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Senator Markey of Massachusetts say they plan to reintroduce the Green New Deal, which the last time failed in the Senate without a single um, uh, vote of support from Republicans. Now that Democrats uh, control the Senate, the House and the White House. Do you believe the new the new Green Deal could pass? Do you think it should pass? Well, first of all, it's not my job to be involved in in current legislation. It's my job to help negotiate internationally. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, I mean, obviously, any member of Congress can introduce something, but President Biden has a plan. And President Biden believes this is the greatest jobs opportunity in the history of our country since the Industrial Revolution. In the, in, the, in the doing of the things that President Biden has put on the table in terms of his jobs plan for the country, uh, we have extraordinary opportunity. It's not mytho mythological, it's real. In the building of a legitimate grid, we don't even have a grid in the United States of America. We have an East Coast grid, a West Coast grid. We have Texas with its own grid. We've seen how that works out. And then you have a line that goes from Chicago across the top of the country in a huge hole in the middle of our nation. Here we are, the nation that invents vaccines and the internet and goes to the moon, but we do not have the ability to send electrons 
from one part of the country to another because we don't have the transmission lines. We can't get it across state lines in too many places because of politics. And we don't have the ability to use the artificial intelligence and quantum computing that could literally send energy at any time of need to a different part of the country, make us more efficient, lower prices for Americans, and create incredible jobs which will have pipe fitters and iron workers and steel workers and plumbers and electricians and, uh, and, and heavy equipment operators and all the other people who are necessary to this transition that we need to engage in. It's a transition that will reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases, which is pollution. It will reduce pollution, which sends our children to the hospitals during the summer because of environmentally induced asthma pollution that complicates uh, COVID-19 uh, cases uh, because of the quality of the air. We, we will uh, have better health in America, less cancer potential. We will have greater security because we never have to worry about the source of oil from some other nation. Uh, and uh, notwithstanding, we're a great producer today. And we will have greater security writ large because climate crisis is a threat multiplier according mm -hmm. to our own military according to the pentagon general uh, general uh, secretary austin will chair one of our breakout sessions on the security issue during this summit and bill gates others will talk about the innovation capacity of what we're looking at as we, as we chase the holy grail of storage, battery storage of weeks or whatever length of time we can get beyond where we are today. As we chase green hydrogen, uh, as we look for perhaps direct air carbon capture, the opportunities for new technology, new horizons of, of uh, processes and products that will be created will mirror what we did in the space age, what we did in the reaction to Sputnik, what we did with the industrial revolution. This is the greatest moment of transformation of our economy uh, in, in our lifetime, certainly. And, and um, we need to seize it. That's what President Biden is trying to do. His view is this is a huge jobs opportunity. It's also an opportunity for the United States to lead in the creation of these new technologies, to be in the vanguard rather than to be trailing or doing nothing at all. And, and uh, so I, I, I believe the president has put forward the most viable and important piece of legislation that we ought to be organizing around. I have great respect for the other efforts, great respect for people who want to do what we need to do, but I think we need to organize ourselves in the Congress around something that um, can get the votes and will become the law of the land. Secretary, Secretary Kerry, we've got less than two minutes left, um, but I have you here and I have to ask you this question. Um, you've been you a senator to. from that. Yes, I have to. <laughs> you've been a senator from Massachusetts. You were the 2004 Democratic presidential nominee. Um, as, I, as we all know, you were Secretary of State. And, uh, and now you're the special presidential envoy for climate. Through it all, all of those titles, your entire public service, climate has been a passion and a policy passion for you. Uh, even I'm, and I left out in 2007, you and and your wife Teresa Hines Carey wrote a book, the moment, this moment on Earth. And I'm just wondering, do you view this envoy role as your way 
or as an opportunity to cement your legacy when it comes to dealing with the issue and the crisis that is climate change? No, profoundly no. I've never thought about that. This has nothing to do with me and legacy, uh, which I know is the way sometimes uh, the, the media has to organize itself, but I can't emphasize enough. I'm doing this. I have grandchildren and children. Uh, I've been on this uh, issue with Al Gore and Tim Worth and John Warner and a host of us who went to Rio in 1992. Why? Because we saw then the existential components of this challenge. And even now we see the evidence mounting and mounting. As secretary, I went to Antarctic. I, I went to uh, uh, the Arctic, uh, uh, saw firsthand the extraordinary rate of melting taking place. 86 million metric tons of ice falling off of one glacier and one fjord, uh, enough water to take care of all of Connecticut, New York, greater Connecticut and greater New York and New Jersey uh, for a year. I mean, you see these things and nobody could, I think, not be moved to act. Uh, I was involved in the organization of the first Earth Day in 1970. And back then, as a result of that mobilization of voters, uh, we, we had a voting issue. And, and we passed the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Marine Mammal Protection, the Coastal Zone Management, the Endangered Species, and created the Environmental Protection Agency, which Richard Nixon signed into law. So I've, I've seen this journey, and I refuse to accept mm -hmm. the notion, uh, as I wish more people would, that we're the prisoners of indifference or that we have to be the prisoners of denial. We need to stand up for science, for truth, for the evidence. And this, most importantly, this is doable. But the scientists told us two years ago, we have 12 years within which we have to make the most critical decisions to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. Two of those years were wasted with an administration that lied to the American people and never bought into the science. Now we have to make up for that. President Biden ran on this and has made it clear that this is one of his top priorities. So that's why I'm here. Um, you know, there are a lot of other things that would be fun to be doing, but this is the big one. We have gone way over time, but I'm so glad I asked you that question. Secretary John Kerry, Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. My pleasure. Thank you. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Join me for important Earth Day interviews tomorrow, first at 9 a.m. Eastern for former Vice President Al Gore, who spent a lifetime pushing for climate responsibility. And then at 3 p.m. Eastern tomorrow, I talk with Lisa Jackson, former EPA administrator and currently Apple's head of environmental policy and social initiative. So I'll see you tomorrow for both those interviews. Until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.